Welcome to Science Talk, the more or less weekly podcast of Scientific American, posted on November 15th, 2010. I'm Steve Mursky, and Steven Weinberg is a legend in physics. In 2009, Weinberg gave a talk to an audience of science writers at the annual meeting of the National Association of Science Writers in Austin, Texas. What you're going to hear now is a heavily edited version of that talk, which I've been holding all this time because... In the current issue of Scientific American Magazine, we have an interview with Steven Weinberg. So we wanted to put the two together. Now, he was a challenge to record because he was holding both a laser pointer and a microphone. And like any great absent-minded professor would, he would occasionally point with the microphone and speak into the laser pointer. Anyway, Scientific American Editor-in-Chief Mariette Cristina introduced Weinberg. He is the author of more than 300 articles on elementary particle physics, and his research has been honored with many awards, including the 1979 Nobel Prize in Physics and a National Medal of Science. His books include, for popular readers, The First Three Minutes, which I've read and I love, um, Dreams of a Final Theory, The Search for the Fundamental Laws of Nature. He also has just joined Scientific American for its board of advisors. And so with that, I welcome Stephen Weinberg. Thank you very much. In a few months uh, before the end of the year, uh, there will begin operations uh, at what will be the largest scientific instrument ever built, the uh, Large Hadron Collider. It's 27 kilometers in circumference. It is run by the Pan-European Laboratory, CERN. Inside this tube, there is a... uh, an evacuated series of magnets which bend a beam, in fact, two beams of protons that go round and round in opposite directions, being accelerated by electromagnetic fields up to a higher energy than has ever been achieved artificially here on Earth. There are two beams because if you fire a beam of high-energy particles into a stationary target, most of the energy just goes into producing the recoil of the target, which is not interesting. And so today, increasingly, these accelerators are designed to have two beams which collide head-on. In that way, there is no net momentum, and all of the energy available goes into producing new matter. And that's the point, again, referring to the famous E equals mc square. To produce a certain mass, m, you need a certain energy, e. We believe there are exciting new particles to be discovered with masses so large that no previous accelerator had the energy available to produce them. As is very often the case with accelerators, there are some things that we think are likely to be discovered, and we'll be very surprised if they're not. There are other things that may be discovered. We have a menu of possibilities, and then there's also the possibility that something is discovered that nobody anticipated. What we already know about the nature of matter and force is crystallized in what is called the standard model of elementary particles. It's a theory of all of the particles we observe and 
with the exception of gravitation, all of the forces that act among them. It's a theory that was developed in the 1960s and 1970s, and then through a series of experiments in the 1970s and 1980s, became well established as part of the standard canon of scientific knowledge. All ordinary matter, uh, atoms, uh, molecules, people, stars, galaxies, are composed of just two types of quarks and electrons. There are also neutrinos, which are continually being emitted by stars in the course of the processes that produce their, their energy. In addition to these particles, there are heavier particles, which don't appear in ordinary matter because they're so heavy they're unstable and they decay into the particles I've mentioned, electrons, neutrinos, and the two lightest types of quarks. There are heavy quarks, in fact, a total of six types of quarks, and the electrons have particles that are very similar, except they're much heavier, called muons and tauons. The forces between these particles are transmitted, first of all, by photons, which carry the electromagnetic force, and much heavier particles called W and, and Z, uh, which transmit a related force, very closely related force, called the weak nuclear force. There are also particles called gluons, which transmit the strong nuclear force, which holds the quarks together inside the neutron and proton, which are inside atomic nuclei. All of these particles, in the simplest version of the standard model, these particles are all massless. That's what makes it an elegant theory. The symmetries do not allow masses. And um, at the level of the equations of the theory, the symmetries are manifest. Um, when you look at the equations, you see that the W and the Z and the photon are appearing in exactly the same way. Something intrudes to break that symmetry and gives some particles masses. It gives the W and Z, they're very large masses, almost 100 times the mass of the proton. It splits the electrons, which have some mass from the muons and tauons, which are much heavier, and gives the quarks a variety of masses. That something, we believe, is another kind of particle called the Higgs particle. This uh, was proposed as a mathematical possibility without reference to any particular theory uh, of, of nature. This mathematical idea was brought into the theory of the weak and electromagnetic interactions uh, in the late 60s by myself and independently Abdus Salam. The particular particle being sought at the LHC is the one that first appeared in these papers in the late 1960s. That is something that is definitely expected to occur. And um, in a way, it would be much more exciting if it isn't found than if it is. The LHC, although certainly it would be ridiculous to say it was designed specifically to discover the Higgs particle, in its design, that was one of the requirements, that it had to have enough energy to be able to produce this particle. It won't at first, probably, when it runs at reduced energy. But um, eventually, we expect that it will.
somewhat paradoxically, the heavier it is, the closer it is up to the upper limit of where we expect it, the easier it will be to discover, because it will have clearly visible decay modes. The Higgs, of course, being as heavy as it is, will be unstable. No one will ever see a track of a Higgs particle. What we will see is its decay products and infer from that the fleeting presence of the Higgs particle. It has a variety of possible ways of decaying, and the ones that are most visible and recognizable are only available if it's fairly heavy. If it's lighter, more of them will be produced, but they'll be much harder to recognize. The large accelerator at Fermilab has already ruled out part of the range of relatively heavy Higgs, but it doesn't have the energy and luminosity to study the full range, and probably the Higgs will be discovered at CERN. Uh, if Congress had not had the imbecility to cancel the superconducting supercollider, it would have been discovered long ago here in Texas. That's something we expect. When I say expect, I don't mean we're certain. All we know for sure is that there is a symmetry between photons, Ws, and Zs among the, it's the same symmetry among different types of quarks, among electrons and neutrinos. When I say a symmetry, I mean if you write down the equations, and you perform certain mathematical transformations on the symbols in the equations that have the effect of turning W, Zs, and photons into each other, and electrons into neutrinos, and quarks of different types into each other, then the equations do not change their form. We know that that symmetry is there. It's been very well verified. We know that symmetry is somehow broken by something, we say it's spontaneously broken because it's not a failure of the symmetry in the equations. It's the fact that the symmetry is not satisfied in the solution of the equations. The simplest picture is this simple elementary Higgs particle. But there are other possibilities. And in one of them, so-called technicolor, um, which posits the existence of a super strong force, much stronger than the ordinary strong nuclear force. In, in that picture, there really isn't a Higgs, but you have a whole variety of other particles that are bound together by this extremely strong force. That's a possibility, and there are some theorists, uh, it was a possibility first suggested by Leonard Susskind and myself independently. Uh, I don't think it's likely that that's what's going to be found, because it leads to problems there are observations that you could only understand by tinkering carefully with the theory so that it begins to look like Ptolemaic epicycles. And uh, I don't find it as, as attractive as the original simple picture. But it's a possibility, and we have to remain uh, open to that possibility. That's why it's, it's not uh, a sure thing that the Higgs will be found, but it's highly likely. Then there are... Other possibilities, only speculative, which we have no confidence about, and uh, but which would be extremely exciting. One of them, and I think the best motivated of all the other possibilities, is called supersymmetry. It has roots in the 
Russian literature, which no one was reading at the time, uh, supersymmetry connects all the known particles with particles that are much heavier so that we can understand why they're unknown, but that have different spin. One of the things that's so attractive about it is that for years and years, it was thought to be impossible to have a uh, symmetry that united particles of different spin. There was a theorem uh, called the Coleman-Mandula theorem that seemed to rule out this as a possibility that any such symmetry would conflict essentially with special relativity. Uh, and then it was realized that there was a technical exception that allowed for this. And uh, into that tiny little gap, Wes and Zemino went roaring and invented this essentially unique symmetry. I, I want to emphasize that the minds of physicists can think of all kinds of possibilities. And when we speculate aimlessly, the results are likely to be not very interesting. It's when there are physical principles that narrowly restrict our speculations so that new ideas can only take one or a very limited number of forms that we begin to think that we've discovered something that is an opportunity that nature probably didn't pass up. And most of us have this feeling about supersymmetry. I spoke to Weinberg briefly after his talk. Could you clarify the expectation of, uh, for the LHC uh, regarding supersymmetry versus string theory? Well, I think there's a good chance, by no means a certainty, that the LHC will discover signs of supersymmetry. Um, and supersymmetry is something you expect in a variety of versions of string theory. So that have, if we discover supersymmetry, that'll give us some kind of clue about superstring theory. But what that clue is, I can't imagine. And superstring theory doesn't necessarily require that supersymmetry would appear at the energies that can be reached at the LHC. So if we don't discover supersymmetry at the LHC, it, I don't think we will have learned much about string theory. And uh, you said that the something that would be very exciting would be if we don't find the Higgs. If we don't find the Higgs, that would be very exciting because it means that some other theory has to be invented. We have this alternative theory of so-called technicolor, which I mentioned, that instead of a Higgs being an elementary particle, that there are strong forces that produce the breakdown of the symmetry that would those strong forces would produce a whole zoo of other particles not a higgs but other things that could be found so-called technipions and technoquarks and things like that um or we might find that there's some something else entirely i'm mean, not finding a higgs would force us to be inventive whereas finding a higgs would just show that Everything is just as we expected. And as you said, if we just find the Higgs, that, that's just confirmation in standard. Yeah, mode. yeah, in the simplest version. You can find the video of the entire talk by Steven Weinberg. Just Google Steven Weinberg, NASW 2009, and it should be the first thing that comes up. 
that's it for this episode. We'll be back very soon with more from the November issue, including a look at why women outlive men. Meanwhile, get your science news at www.scientofamerican.com, where you can investigate our dark matter interactive feature called Dark Worlds, a journey to a universe of unseen matter. For Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.